Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. I'm Tom Hayes, and this is your video cast episode 58, podcast episode 48 for the week ending November 27th, 2020. Hope everyone had a wonderful Thanksgiving. This is now Black Friday, so we're going to kick it off uh, with the media spot for this week. I was on the Mark Simone show, a radio show on 710 WOR, which is the number one rated station in New York right before the Rush Limbaugh show. So that was pretty exciting. And Larry Menti uh, invited me on. I've been on his TV show and uh, radio appearances a couple times. Larry is just an all-around great guy. Whenever he asks, I, I say yes. I really enjoy talking with him. He's he's fantastic and, and a complete legend in the business. Over 80 regional Emmy Awards. Yeah, 80. You didn't hear that wrong. And, uh, and four Emmy Awards in the Outstanding Anchor category category and in various writing categories. So uh, that was a great show because Larry asks everything that Main Street wants to know. Where we've been, where we're going, what's happening with the stock market. And he had me on because the Dow hit 30,000 this week, which is a, a milestone landmark that everyone's been waiting for for some time. We, uh, we thought we were going to hit it before the pandemic, uh, but we had to uh, take a detour, and here we are now, and, um, you know, the, 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 how I opened with Larry was that there will, will be no Grinch this year, uh, that Santa Claus is coming to town, and that seems like a bold statement, especially with the level of euphoria and interest in the stock market right now. But if you look at the last 25 years, this was a stat from Tom Lee over at Fundstrat. 90% uh, of the time between Thanksgiving holiday and Christmas holiday, uh, the market is up. The S&P is up in the last 25 years. The Santa Claus rally, and I think we have we have the momentum. And I and I do think that the uh, 30,000 headline is going to bring a number of people off the sidelines. There's four and a half trillion dollars of cash, and that started to happen in the last couple of weeks. And we'll talk about that in this. Uh, podcast video cast. So, uh, like all great interviewers, he, he wanted more specifics. And, and I did mention that uh, a theme we've been covering the last couple of weeks, that while the easy money may have been made in the general indices off the lows, we've recovered all the losses, obviously, and have just broke out to new highs. Uh, we did first on, on the... Um, on the NASDAQ and now we've finally done on the Dow and uh, all indices actually in small caps are starting to take some leadership as well but the laggard sectors of 2020 will be the leadership sectors of 2021 and I emphasized banks defense stocks defense and aerospace and energy all catalyzed by the uh, announcement of three vaccines with efficacy 
between 90 to 95 percent and uh, like a great interviewer he pressed me for some names so uh, in the banking category I talked about a basket of Wells Fargo a Bank of America Citigroup uh, on the defense and aerospace we talked Raytheon General Dynamics uh, and also General Electric which is a levered play on the vaccine recovery and aerospace uh, and finally is uh, energy and I, I emphasize to his, his listeners to stick with the highest quality because they're going to gain share as restrictions come into drilling with the new administration. Uh, they will gain share and the marginal players will 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 be gone. So um, Exxon, Chevron, ConocoPhillips, those type of names. So uh, certainly really great to be on with Larry as always. And um, that was basically it. The other thing he asked was about the uh, cabinet appointments for the new administration, and particularly Janet Yellen. And I said this was a very constructive thing for the stock market because she's a known commodity. She was very effective as Fed chair, and it is a relief for the market that we didn't get an extremist uh, appointment for Secretary of the Treasury so, or someone that would come down aggressively on the banks because we need the banks to continue credit expansion to have a sustainable, durable recovery. And the market uh, took very well to the uh, uh, knowledge that, Secret uh, that uh, Janet Yellen would be the next uh, uh, Secretary of the Treasury. So that was another bullish factor that came to play and was part of the 30,000 story this week. So moving right along, um, we're gonna get to it here. Uh, one of the things that I talked about was Jim Paulson over at CNBC with the output gap. And we didn't get to go into detail last week, but I wanted to get the exact source material from CNBC. And what he was saying is that the pandemic crisis created the biggest divot in the economy that we've ever had in the post-war era. The output gap, which is the difference between where actual GDP is from what it potentially could be if you had full, fully employed the resources at normal productivity, it fell to almost uh, fell almost 11 percent at its largest at its lowest fall uh, recently. It's now improved a little bit. And as third, or third quarter growth improved, uh, but it's still around 8%. So you can see here on this chart uh, that it, it fell to 11. Now it's uh, at 8%, which is larger than almost any time in post-war history, Paulson is saying. And that's where he points out that's the opportunity, says Jim Paulson. He's from the Luthold Group. Um, according to his research, when the output gap is in the lowest quintile, as it is right now, the S&P since 1950 on an annualized forward one month basis had a 24.5% year per year return, more than twice the average stock market gain. So that's pointing to some very promising 
stock market performance in the coming 12 months despite the fact that we've recovered all pandemic gains uh, to date uh, losses to date so I, I, I wanted to lay that out because uh, Jim Paulson when he when I see him on I definitely listen there are a few others as well and I thought that was a unique take on where we are and uh, how it ties in now obviously for us I, I've been a huge proponent of Wells Fargo for some time many of you know and it's done effectively nothing since the crash. It crashed about 50, 55% in March and April, and we started accumulating in the last few months. It was really just doing nothing, going sideways. And then it took a detour and wiped everyone out, and now it's taking off again. So it goes to show when you know what you own and you hang tight and you use the weakness to add to positions what can happen. Uh, this week, Raymond James put a double two-notch upgrade on Wells Fargo to outperform, and their thesis was the same thesis that we've been outlining since, since this summer, effectively. And uh, I'll read some of this from uh, David Long, who set who uh, increased it two notches from to outperform from underperform on decreasing headwings. Long expects pre-tax pre-tax pre-provision income to go through in 2020 at 16 billion, then grow by 8.4 percent next year and 12.2 percent in 2020 as these headwinds decrease. Long expects profitability to improve. As regulatory issues gradually decrease, we expect the bank to embark on a material long-term expense rationalization initiative in order to bring its efficiency rate more in line with that of its peers. We've talked about that. Uh, Carlton English had an article about that over the summer in Barron's. We believe its new CFO and his team are reviewing the bank's current expense base and are targeting cost savings goals for 2021. Long said, we expect Wells Fargo credit performance during this credit cycle to perform better than its peers due to its large exposure to residential real estate loans, which accounts for 35% of its total loan portfolio, portfolio compared to peers at 23%. They have more CNI, which has higher risk right now, as home prices have held up well. Furthermore, its exposure to hotel 1.3% of loans and entertainment 1.0% are well below levels of its peers. Taking into account the steep discount Wells Fargo stock has compared to tangible book value, which we covered ad infinitum, uh, we'll refer back to our article from late August uh, in, in, in this week's article. Long believes Wells Fargo will look to resume buybacks as soon as the Fed allows it, expected to happen by mid-2021. By the way, the mid-period... Uh, because of the crisis, there's going to be a CCAR test result. Usually it's every June. It's now going to be, we're going to get some results in December, which could be a catalyst that will in allow a number of banks to resume buybacks. If you remember, they capped dividends at uh, basically some percentage of the last four quarters net income. Um, buybacks could come back in as the the stress test, the CCAR results come out in December, which would be a monster, monster boost for the sector and take them all up. So um, so they're talking about Wells Fargo being able to return to buybacks by mid-2021. They're probably pointing to the June test, but there may be some good news in December, uh, you know, at least pointing the way forward to that, which would be 
a big deal. So he set a price target of $32. He's going to have to take that up. They always shoot to the downside. You know, when it was down, they're all putting price targets below 20. And then when it starts to rise, they're afraid to take it up too quick. And then they have to chase it all the way up. But it's a move in the, in the correct direction. We are slightly increasing our net uh, our uh, net interest margin projections. We're reducing our loss provision expectations. Remember, those were the two things that we've been pounding the table on. Net interest margin is increasing due to the steepening year, yield curve. You got a five to one 10 year yield to, um, to two year yield right now. And, um, and also reducing loan loss provision expectations. If you recall, uh, the entire sector is uh, booked about $110 billion of reserves. I think when all is said and done, because of Cecil, they had to take the worst possible case scenario all up front. I think they're going to be more than 50% over-reserved, and that $55 billion is going to come back to the industry over the next two to eight quarters as earnings power that's not priced into the stocks for the top four money center banks of which wells fargo is one i think they're over reserved close to 20 billion dollars and that will be monster monster unexpected and not priced in earnings power um so that was the raymond james upgrade then carlton english put out an article on barons uh she's a great bank reporter over there as a refresher uh, Wells Fargo has been under pressure since the emergence of the fake accounting scandal in 2016. Two years later, the Fed Reserve imposed the $2 trillion asset cap on the bank and ordered it to improve its risk management processes. Many hope that with, uh, with the bank's new management team in place and other progress made that the Fed will soon lift the cap and allow the bank to grow. Deutsche Bank analysts see that change coming within the next six months. That's really promising, and it could be much sooner looking at CCAR and the fact that no one who was involved in the, in the uh, accounting scandal four years ago is with the bank. That's number one. Number two, it would be a major catalyst. But you have to think, you know, this stock was trading at $50 before, you know, several months before the um, uh, COVID crisis with the asset cap in place. So if you think about you know, number one, they're over reserved. Two, net interest margins going to be going up. And by the way, they were also trading at fifty dollars with the with the yield curve inverted. So you had no net interest margin, and you had the asset cap, and you were trading at fifty dollars. These these the baby got thrown out with the bathwater on these stocks because everyone thought that you know there were going to be an obscene amount of defaults, and maybe had Mnuchin and. Um, and Powell not stepped in so aggressively and massively and got the agreement of Congress, you would have seen that level of, of severe defaults. But the assumptions made when all of these restrictions were put in place as far as dividends, buybacks, and CCAR tests in June was on the assumption, this severely averse uh, uh, scenario that uh, one, when they took the reserves in Q1 and Q2, the assumption was that unemployment could go as high as 20%. We've always taken the other side of that. You can go back to our recordings. However, that was consensus. Instead, we're at 6.9%. And based on continuing claims dropping this week, uh, we could see in the jobs report next week an unemployment rate drop from 6.9%, maybe to 6.7%, maybe even below 6.5%, which no one's anticipating because everyone's looking at uh, the short-term shutdowns and some of the consumers' confidence numbers because of uh, COVID, but the, the momentum is there and, and the market and, and a lot of the economy is look, looking through these uh, short-term case spikes. So um, 
Uh, do, 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 do. So our best case is that with that Wells Fargo is further along in dealing with its regulatory issues and may be able to exit the asset cap. Matt O'Connor, research analyst at Deutsche Bank, wrote in a note on Monday, which uh, he reiterated his buy rating on the stock. He went on to note that the asset cap is one reason the bank may be under earning. Uh, by O'Connor's measure, Wells Fargo shares trade at 6.7 times 2022 earnings forecast, whereas Wall Street estimates the estimates the stock trades at 8.2 times 2020. Wells Fargo, and either way, listen to these multiples, guys. I mean, this is a tremendous opportunity. And this is a case of opinion following trend. Obviously, the stock is up 38% now off of its uh, uh, lows a few weeks ago. So now everyone's starting to chase up. The more that a sell side puts out these type of notes, the more institutions will feel comfortable and justified about stepping in. And uh, it's a benevolent cycle, or as they would say in uh, Silicon Valley, a fly, a self-perpetuating flywheel. That's how that's how you go in with one piece of paper in Silicon Valley these days and raise, you know, a hundred million dollars for an ideal. Just say you have a flywheel and it's uh, software as a service, and you're off to the races. So, uh, nonetheless, um, and then finally, O'Connor uh, emphasized Wells Fargo's intention to cut costs. After management noted earlier that uh, that its costs were 10 billion higher than peers. So that's from Carlton English over at Barron's. Uh, why Deutsche Bank says Wells Fargo stock is a buy, and they have some negative stuff on Citi, but I think Citi's okay as well. Uh, this is direct source material from the Federal Reserve Board, and it's interesting. This is the change from 20. This is the uh, June CCAR test results, and I pulled up the, the source data just to see where, how they were thinking about things even in June, um, changed from 2019 Q4 to minimum common equity tier one ratio in the severely ad adverse scenario. And remember the severely adverse, the severely adverse assumption uh, assumes that these that double digit unemployment persists through Q3 of 2020. Okay, they ha they still have it in Q3 of 2020 over 10 percent, and they get it, they have it going up as high as 12 and 13 percent in the short term, uh, uh, as recently as Q2 2022. They have in the severe case. 12.5 to 13% unemployment. So they totally missed the boat. They, they, it was an emotional estimate, but it's okay. They, they're, their incentives are to be overly conservative. We've done past um, a podcast about the cost of caution as it related to Fauci in the early days of, of the pandemic. I, I think this is the same case with the bank regulators, but nonetheless, that's okay. They kitchen-sinked kitchen all um, expenses, all loan loss provisions in Q1 and Q2, and because of the uh, Federal Reserve Board's uh, apocalyptic outlook, or at least accounting for that, all the news going forward is going to be predominantly good news because expectations were so low. So anyway, this was the change from um, Q4 2019 to minimum common equity tier one ratio if the severe severely adverse scenario played out. And you can see here, Wells Fargo and Bank of America are on a, relative to the big banks of Goldman Sachs, J, even JP Morgan, 
and others are really in a tremendously positive situation, even if the severe case had played out, um, their, their tier one would be in, in good shape. Second thing is the total loan loss rates in the severely adverse scenario of 10%, 10 to 12% unemployment persisting through 2023, which it's gone exactly the opposite of what they expected. Uh, now we're probably gonna hit six, seven or six, five next week. Um, Wells Fargo is also in the best best position, which is why, by the way, it was trading at $50, even with an inverted yield curve and an asset cap prior to the COVID crisis, several months prior. So if you look Wells Fargo relative to the other peers, I mean, you know, everyone keeps saying JP Morgan is best in class, but you know, if you look in on all these metrics, they're they're less well capitalized and they've got more exposure on loan losses than a Bank of America or a Wells Fargo, which is why those two are our favorite two banks. So um, you can get that at federalreserve.gov. And uh, as far as the other stuff that I've referenced, the uh, Mark Simone, I, I would strongly recommend you listen to that just to hear Larry Menti's voice. He's got the, the greatest TV and no wonder he's, he's gotten so many Emmys. Uh, you can find it all on hedgefundtips.com. Just click on Featured On and you can see all of our, our spots there. Okay, moving on. Um, there's an article here in uh, Business Insider from Matthew Fox saying the stock market will surge 26% next year as it has one of the best setup in years, JP Morgan. Now it's interesting for those of you who've been with me for a while, where were these guys in March and April when we were pounding the table, uh, about the opportunity of a lifetime to get exposure. Now, now that the market has regained hundred percent of its losses, uh, they're all pounding the table. So it's probably, you know, in certain, uh, heated pockets, probably time to take a little bit off, but, but we've been focused on the non-heated pockets. So, so now's the time to get exposure. But the the basis of Lakos's um, argument at J.P. Morgan is that uh, corporate buybacks could make a comeback in 2021 with built up cash levels and a more normalized economy, as well as mergers and acquisitions. The bank predicted. Uh, finally, 2022 earnings expectations still have room to surprise investors to the upside. With 2022 growth likely pulled forward into the second half of 2021 as the economy reopens, according to the note. You know, this is something that we covered with Kristen Scholler about a week and a half ago on Cheddar. That what no one's expecting that is definitely in the cards is a persistent drumbeat of upward earnings expectation revisions. So taking earnings estimates up versus the normal trend is down as you get closer. I think they're going to continue to go up. And I think that's going to be attributable to two specific areas. Financials are going to take the lead with uh, releasing, you know, 50 some odd billion dollars of excess loan loss reserves that will come back as earnings that is not priced in at present. Uh, and the ungrounding of the 737 max now with the vaccine and the efficacy which we covered last week you know when you got a 30 to 50 percent efficacy like a flu shot people are like yeah maybe i'll take it maybe i won't i'll watch and see how other people do if they don't die i'll try it but now with a 94 to 95 percent efficacy i think everyone's like i want to get back to my life i want to get on an airplane i want to go here i want to go there give me the vaccine and because i know it's going to work at least if i'm going to you know take it i know it's going to work 
And, uh, and I think that's going to be an absolutely huge thing for the GEs, for the Boeings, but particularly Boeing because it's such a heavy weight within the indices that bringing back that earnings power from the 737 MAX is going to have a big impact on overall earnings and no one's focused on it right now. So expect uh, Boeing's earnings along with banks, but Boeing's earnings to go up dramatically and uh, because it's been taken down so dramatically as those orders just start to pour in as the demand kicks in, which is uh, consistent with our, our uh, thesis on energy as well, which is now starting to get bid in a material way. So, uh, so there's one more reason is the corporate buybacks, which have really been subdued this year. Uh, those are going to come back into play in a material way. Uh, next is um, corporate earnings. So this is... Um, U.S. corporate profits jumped a record $495 billion in the third quarter as the economy reopened. That was a 27.1% annualized rate as third, uh, in the third quarter as consumer demand bounced back and firms reopened. So it's nice to see these records and um, domestic profits of financial corporations left $24.5 billion. These are not trading like they just had record quarters. And, uh, and, and again, opinion follows trend. We emphasize it almost every single week. Opinion follows trend. These stocks start to move, then the analysts get out, and then the big institutional money follows the analysts. So that's very, very promising to see. Um, the Dow 30,000 headline could draw in investors from the sidelines with more stocks participating in the next leg. Uh, they expect investors to continue betting on cyclical stocks, benefiting from a, an economic recovery, particularly in financials, and, uh, and that will be part of the next leg. And we're seeing it now in financials, we're seeing it in energy, we're seeing it in some of these defense stocks. Uh, obviously, industrials have had a big run, transports have had a big run, and this comes down to the vaccine as the catalyst. So that's very good to see. Now. That's all good news, rah, 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 but you also have to consider your downside. <clears throat> Robin Wigglesworth of Financial Times put this out on Twitter, I think, yesterday. This shows global equity flows, and here we are at the highest global equity flow this week as we've had since January of 2018. So the knee-jerk response is to say, oh, no, wait, we didn't we crash right after that? Yes, we did. We had uh, 10 or 15% pullback in early January 18. That's not off the table here. But I think that um, there's a real consensus knowledge of the euphoric measures right now and when everyone knows it and everyone's talking about it and everyone is um, getting nervous about it in other words when everyone is expecting a pullback is when you don't get it and usually what I find is when these levels are elevated and everyone knows it and everyone's talking about it and they all think they're contra contrarians it's actually catalyzes a melt-up meaning that Everyone feeling so smart and contrarian, the pain trade then has to be up to then take them out uh, and force them back into the market, you know, three, four, five, six, seven percent higher uh, when it really is at that euphoria. So I, I would if I had to bet on a 10 percent correction in the next two months or a melt up, I would bet on a melt up. 
Um, you know, a three or five percent pullback, that's nothing, that's noise. Um, and uh, but but I but I would say there there is so much talk about the euphoria and these inflows that I, I, I think probably and based on the seasonality and the, the broader participation of, among different sectors now that the vaccine is out, I think it's more likely that you get the Santa Claus rally and the average, uh, I think I put out a chart last week was about 7% over this, this uh, December period. Maybe we front loaded a little bit in the rally in November. Obviously it's been a great month, but, um, but I'd, be, I'd be cautious about getting too, certainly too defensive, but, but definitely too short uh, into the end of the year with all these managers having to chase that were flat footed into the election. Uh, Tom Lee had put this out. He, he put out the stat uh, here on the uh, seasonality of it. 90% of the time it goes up from Thanksgiving to Christmas. Uh, and he talks about the rotation. And then we've got another uh, catalyst going here. OPEC watchers, with, as far as energy, expect the group to delay the supply boost by three months. This is a, this is a misleading headline. It's not a supply boost. It's a reduction of the cuts, which was pre-planned when they started the program last last uh, um, uh, many months ago. So the point is that the cuts, which started at 9.7 million barrels a day, then dropped several months later to 7.7 million barrels of cuts per day by OPEC, were supposed to go to 5.7 million barrels a day of cuts per day. Uh, through April of 2022, the longest, most material amount of cuts in the history of OPEC. And so now what they're saying is that maybe uh, we will hold off reducing the cut from 7.7 million barrels a day to 5.7 million barrels a day from December through March, which would be good for them and, and good for everyone. Uh, that's likely to happen Energy is starting to sniff that out, obviously, and obviously with the vaccine and expected air travel coming back, that's why you've seen a huge bid in, in energy. We had a draw, crude draw this week, back to draws, which was very, very positive. Uh, and the energy sector had its best month in the history of ever. <laughs> so, uh, so, so they're kind of, you know, they're hamstrung a little bit here because, you know, Oil's getting a bid, and now they they got to talk to cuts, and the marginal players in OPEC are going to say, we don't want to cut, we want to drill, you know, the price is up, let's just, and, uh, or we want to pump, rather. So my guess is that they do delay it anyway, and we, which will be great for the energy sector, which will be great for energy prices. And keep in mind, uh, the new administration is going to do a lot of OPEC's heavy, heavy lifting next year. They're going to institute likely more restrictions on drilling in the U.S., which is why the bigger players will get bigger and more profitable. The marginal players will go bankrupt. And that's just a tremendous secular multi-year rally. Uh, and as I said, you know, six months ago in June, when I put out the Rystead chart, I think it was June, June 18th article, um, I said, you know, you couldn't sell this to anyone at this point, but sure enough, it's happening. And as I've said in the last few months, you're gonna see three to four, four dollars, or last few weeks uh, since the, the administration change, you're gonna see three to four dollars a uh, gallon at the pump again. Just a question of time, whether that's six months out or 12 months out or 18 months out. Um, 
uh, more restrictions will come in on drilling and that will actually uh, help the sector, uh, the bigger players in the sector. So this is a very positive thing. You'll get the supply reduction from the US, the supply reduction from OPEC, and that will help those players. And uh, uh, the consumer is the one who loses out. So that's that. We, we just simply don't have enough renewables uh, to offset the premature uh, cutting of um, carbon supply at present. Uh, that'll be a longer term transition. So in the meantime, the price goes up before it's uh, slowly replaced by renewables, which is a, probably a 2050 story. So, um, okay, now I wanna move on to China because China, as we've covered for many months, has been a leading indicator of the U.S. recovery. They've done uh, a very, they had their epicenter peak in Wuhan two months before we had our epicenter peak in uh, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. We had ours in April, they had theirs in February. So they've been about two months ahead of us on everything. Um, uh, first stat I want to cover just really quickly is this headline from Reuters, China hits 26% of 2020 target for U.S. energy imports under the trade deal. Uh, that's the bad news. They're, they're failing on uh, phase one. However, their soybean purchases, et cetera, have been very good. Uh, it'll be, remain to be seen how this uh, phase one deal is addressed uh, by a new administration. But leaving that aside is they've had a dramatic increase so they've done $6.6 .6 billion of uh, purchases of U.S. energy versus the $25.3 billion target. Obviously, they're going to get a little slack because COVID came into play and their de overall demand for energy came down. It's like, what are they going to do with it? Just buy it and, you know, leave it in tankers offshore uh, if, they're, if they weren't using it the first four or five months of the year. So, the, but, but of the 6.1, the vast majority, I think four or five billion has come in the last few months. So that is dramatically ramping up, which shows the demand for energy from the second largest economy in the world is, uh, is dramatically increasing. So uh, that is very positive to see. And there's also a huge amount, they're doing coal to coal to gas switching. The demand for um, LNG which is gonna benefit our Marcellus plays and uh, some of our, our, uh, our gas producers in the US, which we, we've had a ton of, uh, will, will benefit from this deal and from China's continued purchases. So it's very positive to see. It's indicative of their recovery being sustainable, which is a, a, a good signal for the rest of the world's recovery, which are several months behind theirs. So the recovery is real. Their main, uh, uh, mainland stock market is at its highest level since 2015, so that, that's been a good thing. And they're going to grow. They're actually going to expand this year at 2.3% because they had those extra few months uh, to recover that we didn't have. And uh, in 2021, they're going to grow, it looks like, between 7 and 8%. Uh, we're a few months behind. We're probably going to contract this year just a little over 3%. We're going to grow next year at our highest pace in decades, over six, I think over 6%, maybe 5 to 6% at the low end, 6 to 6.5% at the high end. And that's a function of 25% uh, year-on-year uh, money supply growth, M2 money supply growth. Uh, about a quarter of that generally translates into the real economy, into GDP growth. 
so that's good to see. The other thing we're seeing that that um, substantiates their numbers is the export boom that they're seeing predominantly in PPE gear and in work from home electronics, computers, you know, microphones, uh, video cameras, etc. Uh, and the South Korean exports, which is a leading indicator in Asia, uh, for Asia and global trade generally, uh, South Korean exports are up 11% in recent weeks. It's showing solid demand for tech products around the world. So that's, that's a very auspicious uh, indicator for global trade. And what we're really seeing here is a realization of $20 trillion dollars of fiscal and monetary policy set in place in the spring on the six to nine month lag in order to solve a $3.6 trillion GDP contraction now being realized in the real economy. And when that velocity picks up, we're gonna see growth levels like we've never seen before. You couple that, and, and mind you, all these Chinese numbers in particular were pre-vaccine. Yes, they put a million people on the Chinese version of the vaccine in the last week or two, but that has nothing to do with these recovery numbers. So if we can get back to pre-pandemic levels, which we have on many metrics uh, before the vaccine, imagine what we're gonna do post-vaccine with that $20 trillion of liquidity and fiscal uh, monetary liquidity, seven and a half trillion fiscal stimulus, 12 trillion, just starting to kick in. Uh, and um, uh, it, it, it's really a, a positive, positive formula. Uh, their domestic air travels uh, well beyond pre-pandemic levels now. Their movie box orders cooking uh, during their Golden Week holiday. It was their second best box office ever, even though they're limited to 75% capacity. You're seeing it in uh, metals, iron ore, copper, aluminum near multi-year highs. And their total value of home sales, it grew uh, year on year up 8.2% through November 1st. So uh, it's all there. We, we covered the energy exports and they just reported last night industrial profits up 28.2% versus 10.10% on the last reading. This is their highest industrial profit growth in 12 years. This is indicative of the global recovery. Yes, you'll have a little bit of fits and starts with the regional shutdowns in Europe and the case spikes. But again, this is all short term because we've got December 12th vaccinations start for frontline workers then the most at risk population and by may there is an expectation that we'll be at full herd immunity because 100 percent of the population in the u.s will uh, have access to a vaccine by the second quarter which is very very exciting now looking at some of their economic data so we can get a, a vision into the future of some of the things we have to look forward to the uh, this is for their month of November, their manufacturing PMI, uh, obviously expansion, but beat expectations at 53.6. Their exports, uh, again, to reemphasize, were up 11.4%, predominantly PPE and tech, uh, versus 9.3% expectations, blew the doors off. Their imports were down, uh, not down, they were up 4.7%. The expectations were 9.5%. Uh, so uh, so that shows that they've, their consumer uh, has to pick up a little bit more, although they have been in the last few months, but uh, this number has, has room to run. Uh, their inflation, uh, CPI and PPI numbers were lower because pork and hog prices in the month of October uh, dropped dramatically after spiking last year due to the swine flu and due to the flooding in the southern region that increased 
prices and transportation costs, both of those have been resolved. So those prices dropped off the off the chart and that brought down inflation uh, along with energy. If you remember in October was really uh, under pressure and that also impacted their inflation numbers. So those will start to pick up. Uh, the money supply M2 increased 10%, 10.5% in October. Their new loan growth in increased uh, $689 billion, a little bit below expectations, but still a strong number nonetheless. And their outstanding loan growth grew by 10.9%. And that's what I've been pounding the table on on the U.S. banks and for regulators to release the Wells Fargo asset cap, one of our largest lenders. You can't have a sustained, uh, durable recovery without credit expansion. And, and uh, Wells Fargo is one of the key transmission mechanisms for that. Take the cap off and watch the recovery flourish. So um, we're seeing that in these numbers. Uh, their industrial production was up, uh, beat expectations 6.9%. Uh, retail sales, this is again where, where it's showing some lightness in the consumer was up 4.3 versus 4.9% expectations. Our consumer numbers we'll take a look at today, uh, just in terms of consumer confidence, was a little bit lighter, but you have to expect that with record spikes in COVID cases in the short term, but still strong, just a little lighter than expectations. Their unemployment rate is at 5.3, but that's an urban unemployment rate. Our total is at 6.9. I think that's coming down based on the continuing claims dropping this week. So, And then industrial profit last night uh, hit at 20 8.2 versus the previous print of 10.10%. And, um, and that was the highest rate in, in over a decade. So that, that uh, gives us a, a little inkling of what we have to look forward to. The title of our article of the week was the Buster Poindexter Hot, Hot, Hot Stock Market and Sentiment Results. And um, I chose this song to embody the sentiment of this week's stock market. After breaking 30,000 on the Dow, my mom actually called me up to ask if she should buy Pfizer. <laughs> so all the contrarians would scream, that's a top, that's a top. Or God forbid they put 30,000 on the on the cover of Barron's this week. They're all going to be tweeting it out. It's over. You know, the bull and the 30,000, we're going to crash and go into a depression. Well, are they right? Let's let's uh, let's unpack that a little bit in this week's article and, and see the pluses and minuses of the euphoria and the records. So you can listen to uh, Buster Poindexter only if you want to smile and uh, and and have a fun time. But beyond that, um, we covered uh, the appearance on the Mark Simone show and um, moving right into the meat here in our October 22nd article, which you can find on hedgefundtips.com. You just go, you can scroll down here and you click on either sentiment or commentary under categories and you can pull up every article we've ever done and uh, the weekly articles. But we made the case that equal weighted indices would begin to outperform cap weighted indices as cyclicals began to outperform in the new business cycle. Just a week later, the, the shift began in earnest and sure enough this week, uh, November 25th, Barron's put out a note, equal weighted indices are winning, and that's a good sign for stocks. So you had uh, today's front page, uh, let's see, 22nd, so about uh, five weeks ago. And um, and then the second thing is, uh, in that same article, everyone was calling the market a bubble at that point, and they were all buying insurance when the VIX was elevated above 25. And I said, when the VIX is at these levels, you want to be selling insurance and buying the stock market. Instead, they were buying insurance and selling the stock market ahead of the election. And, um, and we laid out 
you know, literally pages of, of stocks that looked nothing like a bubble. And the stocks in that list are the ones that have had the most dramatic outperformance in the past few weeks. Here's a list from uh, Michael Santoli over at CNBC. He tweeted out a couple days ago. Uh, these, uh, uh, these stocks, Occidental up 83%, FANG 81%. Uh, a lot of energy here. Devon, Apache, National Oil Well Varco, EOG, Concho, ConocoPhillips, Valero, Boeing, Schlumberger, Halliburton, uh, Carnival Corp, etc. Compare it to the list that I laid out on October 22nd, and it's literally like name for name. I mean, it's, it's literally the exact names that we had on that list. Let's see if I can pull that up right here. It was the Taylor Swift, you need to calm down stock market and sentiment results. And here's, here was the chart of the VIX um, chart, and I was saying... You know, if you wanted to call a top, you'd be calling it when the VIX was at 10, not when the VIX was above, it was at 27.5 at the time. Uh, again, that's when you sell insurance and buy the market, not buy insurance and sell the market. And then I said, um, do these stocks look like a bubble? And you can just go through them. It's literally name for name, all of the stocks that have had the best performance since. And um Okay, so the chart below uh, from Ned Davis Research, which we're going to cover, and this came from at Bull and Baird, B-U-L-L-A-N-D-B-A-I-R-D on Twitter. You can uh, follow them, their strategist over at Baird, points to the weakening of the top five weighted stocks, uh, FANG+, Plus, Microsoft, etc., that made up 25% of the S&P weighting. We've been covering that for many months, that they would start to relatively underperform in the new business cycle. Cyclicals outperform, the economically sensitive stocks outperform, and that's exactly what happened. They're now rolling over since September. Their relative weight percentage as the stock market cap is now starting to moderate as the cyclicals gain strength into the new business cycle. So the market rising and the heaviest weight uh, and the heaviest weights weakening is a sign of strength as managers now have many more pockets of, of the market that they can purchase earnings growth. So in a slow growing economy uh, during COVID, they could only buy those handful of stocks that were growing and they bid them up dearly. And um, those stocks that were bid up in an effort to find earnings growth in a weakening economy can no longer command the same premiums they once did as managers' options to buy earnings growth have now multiplied. So this is an extreme high in market breadth off of multi-decade lows in the past. Uh, this past March is not the sign of the, a top, but rather a confirmation of a new uptrend. So a lot of people have been pointing to, well, um, you have new NYSE stocks above their 200-day moving average. It's over 80%. That's an extreme. That's a top. No, coming out of major crashes, this is, you know, 2009, 2015. This is the sign that first spike up is confirmation of a new trend of a new business cycle. And as the market rallies over a number of years, uh, you know, you'll have this divergence where that breath will start to normalize, but the market continues to go up. As you get later into the cycle, the breath gets more narrow. But at the beginning, the breath is wide because you have so many stocks growing earnings all off of low bases. And that's been the fundamental thesis of, of our uh, move to cyclicals for the last months, months that we've been pounding the table on this, and it's now playing out. So uh, this is not the sign of a top. Now, can you get a little sideways consolidation off of that first 
big spike, sure. But the trend for the next few years is up. It's a new business cycle. The trend, you know, yeah, this it looks like a blip, but that was probably a four, four or five percent pullback. You know, this was probably a seven percent pullback. But the trend was up for years. The trend was up for years, and the same thing is going to be the case here. Uh, this was from Ari Wald over at. Act. Oppenheimer by way of J.C. Parrots, P-A-R-E-T-S. You can find him on Twitter. And this shows that we're closer to the beginning of a new uptrend than the end. It doesn't preclude pullbacks, but it's potentially a sign that it will be more costly to be on the sidelines than most expect in coming years. It's going to cost you dearly. One, because of your purchasing power, and two, because you'll never be able to regain the gains. And I think many people who weren't listening uh, and paying attention in March and April and either getting out or not getting more exposure, uh, you, you don't get those opportunities many times in a career to, you know, now we're 100% back. We've regained 100% of those losses, 66% up in the S&P 500 off those lows, and that, that's an opportunity. That's the bad news. The good news is, uh, as great as that was, I think the opportunities in cyclicals starting, you know, recently are going to be as good, if not better, in coming months and quarters than having bought the March lows, the general indices. So um, uh, take advantage of that moving forward. So um, duh, 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 that so that 4.4 trillion of cash on the sidelines will be forced back in. Uh, many institutional managers will be getting calls from their moms saying, should I buy Tesla? And uh, all of those crazy things. I got the call about Pfizer, and I'll give you the answer at the end of the article. And so, um, so that money is going to come back in due to, one, the market discounting the full reopening, potential uh, uh, herd immunity as soon as May 2021, and the lagged effect of that $20 trillion of stimulus aid and liquidity hitting the economy. There's always a six to nine month lag. Most of that went out between March and June. So we're just not even five, six months out. We should be hitting the sweet spot in Q1 uh, as that hits and the vaccine hits and everything else. Now, what's strange about this extreme in sentiment and other measures is as I alluded to earlier, the fact that everyone knows it and they're all calling for a top for the same reasons once again. And when everyone's expecting that correction is when you might not get it, you might get exactly the opposite. The pain trade may very well be up or potentially a melt up. We'll see. But if I had to take the other side, a melt up or a 10% correction, I'd take the melt up, um, uh, you know, given, given where we are. And one of the things I look at is the skew index, the bets, on tail risk you can click on this video to, to get a more granular detail but you get tops closer to when you're elevated above 150 that that starts to trigger when you could see that sell-off we already had our elevation in june and we've got our pullbacks in uh september and and october uh this is a very subdued level you don't see extreme uh, tail risk bets here. If anything, it's it's more of an aftershock in the beginning of a trend. So the skew looks good. The commitment of traders. I follow the commercials. They tend to be ahead of the big moves. Um, however, you know, so we're going to talk about the Dow just because that's where all the headlines are right now. Even though as institutional managers, we focus on the S and P as a better representative of the overall economy. However, um, if you look at these times that they were buying ahead of the big moves, the market went up buying ahead, up, buying ahead, up, buying ahead, up, uh, commercials buying ahead, up, 
buying ahead up and then here again recently they're buying ahead so you know in theory we should be up this is not a foolproof thing the com commitment of traders it's more of a barometer but when i see them buying you know uh that that tends to be a, a very positive thing moving on to uh the most hated stock in the s p 500 we said in august is now uh you're starting to see the sell side fall back in love we'll we'll see we're up 38.5 percent off the complete flush out lows if you remember the cobra kai article then we took an article we took a, a detour added and uh, here we are and i think it's just the beginning and if you look at this ADX indicator, which we don't use very often, however, on this long-term chart, it just lined up perfectly. 15 out of 16 times you had this green over red cross. You had monster moves uh, like you saw here in, in uh, at the 2016, right after the election. That was a, a big move that looks a lot like this. It regained its highs within months, not years. Uh, back to book value and we're doing the exact same playbook the question is how quickly do we get back up to book which is about $40 a share and you look at this overhead supply kind of correlates with that level between 42 43 44 dollars I think we could get there a lot quicker than expected but we take it one day at a time and uh, and we love love this position now we put back on the sentiment if you remember we put this out here this is kind of a long-term sentiment roadmap that I've used many times for these type of stocks. This is kind of my knitting. I, I specialize in sector rotation and in dislocation. Obviously, Wells Fargo was a perfect example of dislocation, and that's where I thrive. And I use this kind of sentiment roadmap, and we were kind of at this position here where we had hit panic, discouragement, uh, wall of worry, and then we, we had this spike up. And aversion has taken much longer than expected. You know, we had put this out, we had anticipated aversion was here at $22, went back down to $21 before now finally rising. We're on our way back to denial. And after denial is when you get that parabolic move. You probably consolidate up here around 33 bucks for a week or so. And then we could see uh, a massive return to confidence, which would be, by the way, right around all of this overhead supply at 40 to $44. And coincidentally, that's book value per share, which the last two times Wells Fargo traded at this discount to book was two times in its career, and it restored back to book within months, not years. Potentially CCAR, the uh, mid-year CCAR due to the crisis coming out in December will catalyze that move back up to book, which could be really, really exciting. So that's the story there. Now on to the general market. Um, the AAII sentiment survey result was uh, at euphoric levels, 47.5% bullish, 27.47 uh, bearish. And um, but, 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 while this is an extreme and short-term sentiment and should be heated in the short-term, it is important to note in the chart below that while similar levels presaged a short-term top in, in early 2018, they, as did those equity inflows, by the way, that the uh, reporter from Financial Times put out, they occurred near the beginning of a longer-term uptrend at the end of 2016-2017, right after the presidential election. Hint, hint, we're right after the presidential election. History doesn't repeat, but it is rhyming, as anticipated. And uh, you take a look right here. Here you got elevated and then you had this thing and yeah, you had that 10-15% uh, pullback in uh, first quarter of 18. But here you had the same elevation and then the same rise. And that was, again, after a huge drawdown in 2000, early 2016 like we had in early 2020. Then you had the consolidation before the election, consolidation before the election. 
And this was actually the beginning and confirmation of a long-term uptrend for the next year, year and a half. And I think we're in a similar situation. I think this is much more like the end of 2016 than it is the beginning of 2018, because 18 was coming off of after a huge breakout and uh, year and a half run. We are just breaking out. So um, says, you know, certainly to be heated. You know, again, looking at the fear and greed index, this is elevated. 91 is euphoria. Uh, at this level, this is not where you want to be adding risk to the general indices. Uh, it can run hot for a while, but the odds start to stack against you if you're not selective at these levels. You don't want to run out and buy the NASDAQ today. Uh, however, in these laggard sectors that are just getting going, banks, defense stocks, and uh, energy where there's still opportunity, there's not a greed of 91 in those sectors at present. So this is for the general indices, and I think there's still opportunity. And finally, the National Association of Active Investment Managers jumped to 106.41 from 96% last week. As we said before the election, managers would have to chase into year end, and they are doing just that right now. And as you can see over the past five years, this level of extreme warrants caution, but is not always indicative of a top. So our message for the week is not changed. While the short-term easy money has been made in the general indices off the March lows, I think the easy money is just getting started in the left for dead sectors and stocks. I believe that banks, defense stocks, and pockets of energy will be as good, if not orders of magnitude better in coming quarters than buying the general market was in late March. In the meantime, you'll see a parade of top callers praying for a buyable pullback so that they can catch their benchmarks. Even if they're right in the short term and we may get a minor pullback, they will be wrong over the intermediate term as the new business cycle has just begun. In case you're wondering what I told my mom, I said she could buy Pfizer here with a long-term view and that the purchase should have nothing to do with the short-term vaccine approval. She will own a long-term durable franchise in a secular uptrend due to demographics and get paid a handsome increasing dividend of 4.15% in the meantime while she waits. All the people all around me feeling hot, hot, hot. So that's the article. For those on the podcast, we're gonna cut off in about four minutes. Just go to hedgefundtips.com and watch the video cast version. Fast forward to minute 60, and uh, you can just catch the last few minutes there. Moving right along, um, we've got unusual activity three days in a row in ExxonMobil. Opinion follows trend. So this was uh, 4,500 contracts on the 23rd. 5,400 contracts on the 24th, and 5,038 5, contracts on the 25th. Um, the U.S. data has been really positive this week. Manufacturing PMIs beat expectations 56.7. Services PMI also strong, 57.7 versus 55 estimates. Um, consumer confidence was a little lighter, but it's still at 96, 98 was the estimates. That's from all the case spikes and everything you see on TV all day long. The continuing claims is the most important number that I said that's going to lead to a good jobs report next week. That came down from uh, 6.3 million down to 6.071 million. That's more important than init initial jobless claims, which is a noisy number. And um, Michigan current conditions was positive, beat expectations. New home sales beat expectations at 999,000 versus 970,000 expectations. Crude inventories, we went back to draws again, as I'd anticipated. They, we drew 750,000 barrels this week, which was good to see. 
and uh, and that's probably indicative also of uh, more than a million people going through the TSA for holiday travel. Let's just see what that passenger throughput was. Uh, they hit, yeah, uh, 1,070,000 on Thanksgiving, 1,047,000, so at about a little less than half of last year. You know, $3 million million person days in the last year, uh, in the last week, which is very good relative to over $2 million last year, but we're moving in the right direction. And earnings estimates continue to climb higher. This is now up to 168.90 from 163 a couple of months ago. So with that said, wishing everyone a nice, long, extended weekend. Again, hope you had a th happy Thanksgiving and holiday season moving forward. We'll be on Cheddar TV on Monday morning at 9.30 a.m. with Kristen Scholler. Tune in if you're around. And we'll be back next week, same time, same place for the podcast vi video cast. Thanks for listening in.